Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Peter Hennessy. It's my great pleasure to introduce David Owen this evening to talk about his new book, In Sickness and in Power. I'm terribly pleased he's done it. It's a very good book. I've always thought the occupational health of prime ministers and presidents was the second most understudied aspect of men and women in power. The first and most understudied aspect is the influence of gossip, rumour and scuttlebutt on high politics and individuals. It's a book I've often wanted to write myself, but it's very hard to produce footnotes, so I haven't. But this is the second most understudied area. And when I first came here to LSE as a research student in 1969, one of the first books I bought was on this subject, and I think it might be the very first one that's in the genre that David's carried on by a professional medical man. It was Hewley Tang's The Pathology of Leadership. Terrific book. He went on to write some more called Fit to Lead. They meshed very nicely with the work of Ashley Weinberg at Manchester University on the stress on politicians and the incomparable Norman Dixon, author of uh, the, um, what was his book called? Own Worst Enemy. It came out of his psychology of military incompetence, which he'd written after blowing off his own arm as an artillery officer in the regular army. And when you put this literature together, David's is classically in it, but it also takes it on a bit, because we've never had a book on this theme from a trained medical person who's also held very, very high office indeed. So it was very timely, and I'm particularly fascinated by the new occupational health syndrome that he's invented for Bush and Blair, but I don't want to steal his thunder, so I'll get him to tell you about that. I think he's going to speak for about 40 minutes, and then we have time for questions. And when I was here, politicians had a terribly rough ride in this room. Everybody used to shout at them and throw things, so I want none of that tonight. Is that all right? Thank you very much. Well, my days have been shouted at, and uh, I think are rather over now. This is one of the, gr the, the few luxuries of growing old. However, um, I do think this is an important subject. And I've begun to find that my thinking may become more important as the years go by. And I think that's perhaps because I've seen, at fairly recent circumstances, uh, aspects of medical illness that I think need to be uh, sort of teased out. And uh, Peter referred to this, really. Uh, I wrote about hubris syndrome. It's unusual for a paperback to be written before a hardcover. But um, my publishers thought that since I was taking a part in clinical dissection, both George W. Bush and Tony Blair, it was better for it to be published while Tony Blair was still just prime minister. So we acquiesced in this. But in fact, that part of the paperback is in the hardcover book. And I've had more time to think about it, actually. And some of the issues are different. But the first issue I want to deal with is actually still a controversial question. It surprises me, but it is. Is the health of an elected prime minister or president their own affair, pure and simple, or is there a public interest? Now, where you come out on this does slightly uh, affect how you're going to discuss the whole subject. And I personally feel very strongly that if you put yourself up for public office, then from the moment that you do that, particularly for being a head of government, your health is no longer your own. There is a element of your health which now has to be into the public domain. 
And that, in particular, is that element of your health which could affect your decision-making and your judgments when you hold high office. Now, I think it's right to say that most of the people I've written about, and I've looked at, really, heads of government the last 100 years, really believe that it is not a public interest, that it is a private matter. Strangely enough, the person who, above all, seemed to think that it was a public matter and ought to be put into the public domain was Dwight Eisenhower, General Eisenhower. And that's particularly interesting because there is quite a lot of evidence that he had high blood pressure when he was actually in the US Army and hid it uh, from his superiors. But when he became president and had a very serious heart attack uh, playing golf, in, uh, well, after having played golf in Denver, Colorado, he did agree that almost all the information would come out into the public domain. And this was about a year before he would have hoped to stand for a second term. Now, the, the, the issue doesn't matter tremendously, except for the fact that uh, he, I think, also overcame the second issue, which is why they justify not allowing their health to be made public. That is, that they would lose elections if they were to tell the truth about their health. Eisenhower not only told the truth about his uh, heart, he stayed away from the White House for eight weeks, saying that public don't want to cripple in the White House, was quite open about being photographed in his pajamas in the hospital, and was quite open about the fact when he came back that the doctors had not given him a completely free bill of health. They'd given him a qualified approval. He then got better, came back to the White House, was pretty active in the spring uh, of that year, and then coming up to the point when he would have to decide whether to take a second term, he developed uh, Crohn's disease, which he'd had probably grumbling away for quite some time, an acute attack, and had to have surgery and have part of his gut taken out. Again, he was completely open about it. Everybody knew that he was having an operation. They knew why it was. They knew how long he would be in hospital. He then took a fortnight's holiday and said only when he came back and whether his, his doctors would tell him whether or not he was fit enough to run for a second term would he say whether or not he was going to get uh, to run. He came back from his holiday and he revealed his doctor's judgment, which was that he was fit enough to be president for a second term, and he ran and won a handsome victory. And I think that does demonstrate that leveling with the public, even in the year in which you were hoping to stand for a re-election, you can still manage to carry conviction. Now, why I think it's really important is, and why I focused on heads of government and not other political leaders, is that with, even with a good Democrat who actually abides by cabinet government, there are decisions which prime ministers and presidents have to take quite often at awkward times of the day where really they cannot consult their cabinet, where they are making a decision which can have profound consequences. Now take uh, General Sharon, Prime Minister Sharon, who is still alive actually in hospital in Israel on life support. An Israeli Prime Minister, perhaps almost of all of our 
leaders at the present time has to be able to make decisions at uh, virtually no notice at any time of the day or night. This is a country that can be attacked and has been attacked and has had to react very quickly. Therefore, it seems to me of the utmost importance that they have a leader who is able to act decisively and is on, if you like, the top of their decision-making form. The evidence is that a large number of Israeli prime ministers in recent years have had serious illnesses which they have not revealed to their electorates, some of which have damaged their decision-making. Sharon, for example, was really a cardiac cripple. He could not walk much more than 10 or 20 yards from on the flat to his room. He had to take a lift. He couldn't manage stairs. He was in quite serious cardiac disarray, and yet he was able to be Prime Minister of Israel. And when questioned, and when journalists questioned his health, he rebutted every single allegation and was not prepared to come clean about his health. So this is not a problem of the past. And I would go on then to tell you about President Mitterrand. President Mitterrand had cancer of the prostate diagnosed six months into his 14-year presidency. President of France in those days was allowed two seven-year terms. It wasn't just uh, a normal cancer of the prostate, which by and large these days is a treatable disease. This was one where the cancer had spread into the bones and you could see evidence of secondaries on an x-ray of the bone. So it was far advanced cancer. And under normal circumstances, he would have been lucky to live two to three uh, years. His general practitioner and family doctor for some years had consulted a very good uh, and senior uh, prostate cancer specialist. Only two people knew. They had taken great pains to visit the hospital for the diagnosis in secrecy, had used a secret name for his blood tests. And Mitron, who was very shocked by being told this disease and actually thought the game was up and he was not going to live, swore both his doctors to secrecy. This was a secret of state and they were not to tell anyone. It took quite a number of years, something like nine years, before Mitterrand actually told his own wife, and his doctor had just issued a six-monthly bulletin saying, in good faith, that Mitterrand's health was all right. The problem had been that President Pompidou, who died of a uh, fairly rare blood cancer, uh, had died in circumstances where practically nobody in France, only a very small number of people, knew that he was ill. And uh, it came as a considerable shock to the public. So thereafter, presidential candidates committed themselves in France. Giscard d'Estaing did it, and Mitterrand did it, that they would have a six-monthly medical examination and the results would be revealed to the French public. Uh, Giscard abided by it for a year and then abandoned it, and Mitterrand had kept it for this first six months, and his doctor thereafter, for the next 11 years, every six months, issued a bulletin saying his health was fine, where he was being treated for cancer of the prostate. 
and he was given a, a very tough treatment regime. He was given very high dosages of stilbestrol and estrogen. It was one of those cancers that is responsive to hormone therapy. It has one of its consequences that you can get deep vein thrombosis, the thing you get if you go on uh, aircraft and uh, your blood stagnates. And he did develop deep vein thrombosis. And all through this time, it was treated with secrecy. He was then put on blood anticoagulants. And all of this demonstrates that when you have this secrecy surrounding these presidents, not only is the public misled, but they mislead themselves because they actually get, through no fault of the doctors who are treating them, inferior medical treatment. Mitterrand was touring around the world, living an active life as president. His doctor would come with him. He'd give him this uh, estrogen by a transfusion with a drip, which would be sort of hung up on the uh, coat hanger in the uh, hook on a wall where they'd be taking down paintings. The whole thing was incredibly amateurish, where you would normally go into hospital. His blood uh, clotting times was calculated by his own doctor, often while not even get, daring to go in, near any hospital. As a matter of fact, I think you can make a strong case that Mitterrand's first seven years of his presidency was not affected in any way by his illness, and it was not until he developed uh, retention of urine and had to go in for an operation just after having won the referendum that France would go into the euro zone. And it was staggering for the people who were in his private staff, none of whom had realized that for 11 years he'd been treated. Even so, they refused to admit that he'd had cancer, that he'd been treated for radiotherapy, and the pathology tests that were sent off for the prostate that was removed. They never asked the doctor. There was a setup whereby they sent him the things, having told him that they would not ask the question to give the histology and to comment on any treatment that had been happened. So he commented that the histology was that of a cancer of the prostate, but he never made any comments about the radiotherapy treatment that had been given to him. So I, I, I just want to put this in the context that this is happening in modern times. Now, the way we almost always start these stories about uh, illness is you point out that uh, Hillary Clinton may have thought that she'd be the first woman president of the United States, but actually the first woman president of the United States was Mrs. Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson, as some of you will know, had a very severe stroke in 1919. And the importance of this is, first of all, as usual, his private doctor, who in the case of American presidents is very often a serving officer, in this case was an admiral, lied about his health. He was actually lying in a darkened room, unable to write, uh, barely able to talk for any length of time and quite incapable of governing. And when the cabinet asked to see his doctor, he told him he was perfectly fit and well. And when it was raised questions about whether or not there was any possibility of him not being able to conduct his office, he said he wouldn't sign anything other than the fact that he was perfectly fit. So he, the doctor and Mrs. Woodrow Wilson effectively governed. The cabinet were completely sidelined. And the importance historically is that at that very moment, Congress was being asked to uh, agree to the Treaty of Paris, the uh, 
most important and difficult part for Congress was the commitment that all those who signed up to be members of the League of Nations would also be signing up to come to the aid of any other League of Nations country that was attacked. And that, for an isolationist America, who'd only just been ready to come into the First World War in 1917 and not put troops on the ground until 1918, was a very big step indeed. And suffice to say, in the absence of Woodrow Wilson, the congressional leaders were not persuaded. It went down, and France never became a member, uh, sorry, America never became a member of the League of Nations, with very serious consequences. I mean, some would argue that if America had been a member of the League of Nations, Italy would never have invaded Abyssinia, and Hitler would never have gone into Sudetenland or into the Rhineland. Now, the ifs of history are many and varied, and we have to be careful about this, but it was a deeply significant event, and it had profound consequences. I think it's also fair to say about Woodrow Wilson that he had had very high blood pressure way before he became president. He was having little incidents in his brain for many years while president, and some people believe that by the time he reached Paris for the treaty negotiations, he was really dementing and was certainly way off uh, his normal, very high intellectual quality. And uh, he was also, by then, preaching uh, in a way which the Europeans found very difficult. Um, and Clemenceau, who was himself a doctor, both hated Woodrow Wilson and also despised him and thought he was highly, uh, was seriously ill, which indeed he was. Now, we could go through a whole range of other medical illnesses, but I want to focus on uh, one in particular because many in this room will have lived through the times and anyhow, if not lived while he was alive, and I'm talking about J.F. Kennedy, um, would know that he was really a very significant figure who faced a very major challenge, and that was when it was discovered missiles were in Cuba in 1962. We now know, of course, through the opening up of Russian papers, that not only were missiles in Cuba, but nuclear warheads were in Cuba. And we now know something which is even more horrendous, that though Khrushchev and his uh, Minister of Defense had been adamant that he would not give authority for them to fire their uh, ranged missiles which would have hit almost Washington and certainly quite large chunks of the United States. They were prohibited from doing that without specific authority. They were so worried at the prospect of the United States landing forces and actually conducting an invasion of Cuba that they did authorize the use of a short-range uh, missile, under 50 miles range, with nuclear warhead, which would, we now know, have been fired into Guantanamo if any American troops had come in on a landing. Now, we also know that the first piece of advice to Kennedy when faced by the Cuban Missile Crisis was that he should invade, bomb, strategic bombing of uh, Cuba, and after the bombing, be ready, if need be, to put troops in to ensure that the missiles were taken out. Now, when Kennedy was presented with the options, he said, well, there are five options, the first of which was the one I've mentioned, and he said, that we'll definitely do. 
So Kennedy's initial decision-making was to agree to strategic bombing of Cuba. And it was only during the process of discussion and debate, which he conducted, I think, in a very open and very, uh, not it was private, but very open way in the sense of involving a large number of key and important people in the discussions, that he came to the conclusion that that would not be the right thing to do, that he would not be able to take out all the missiles and all the uh, nuclear bombs, and that he went for what we all remember, the naval blockade. Now, I go for that first, and you might say, well, why? I've not mentioned one bit about illness. Well, the first thing about uh, Kennedy, which we now know, but at the time when he was elected, and certainly in 1962, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, very few Americans knew, was that he had Addison's disease, and not minor Addison's disease. He'd probably had it since he was a youngster. Addison's disease is the failure of your adrenal glands, which are on top of your kidneys, and it's fatal unless you can replace it. In, when, in the, when it was diagnosed in the early part, 1920s, 1930s, it was a killer disease. Then they gave them adrenal uh, extracts from animals, and then later they managed to synthesize the key hormones, particularly um, cortisone and testosterone. And once you have the right replacement therapy and properly conducted with the advice of an endocrinologist, that replacement therapy can make you perfectly normal and certainly, in my judgment, fit enough to be president of the United States of America. But in Kennedy's case, there was a massive cover-up that had gone on when he was a lieutenant in the Royal Navy that had gone on ever since. Now, his courage is beyond dispute. I mean, he had a very difficult back pain from his back, which was largely due to osteoporosis of the bones, which was itself a consequence of having taken steroids from the time he was a student in the late 30s. And he had a collapsed vertebra and pressure on his nerve. He had, when it was first diagnosed, funnily enough, it was diagnosed in London in 1947. And on his way back to America on a ship, he uh, was so ill that he was given the last rites as a Catholic. In 1956, when he had an operation on his back because of an infection, it was more the infection than the actual operation. He again was given the last rites. And this was a man who went through the 1960 presidential uh, selection process, hotly denying the stories that were put about by Lyndon Johnson that he was uh, sick, uh, who obviously had a vested interest in it because he wanted to be president, and had denied in a very carefully phrased wording that he had Addison's disease by saying that um, he did not have the classical Addison's disease caused by tuberculosis. Well, 20 or 30 years before, the most of Addison's cases was probably caused by tuberculosis. But it was a well-crafted answer, and it hid a much bigger truth, which was that he had very serious Addison's disease, that it needed to be controlled with replacement therapy, and even so, he was not... Uh, fit by any standard, had a number of infections and other things like that. Now, where does this all lead us? Very soon into his presidency, in the first few months, uh, Kennedy was involved in what's often called the Bay of Pigs fiasco, in which 1,700 Cuban uh, soldiers were landed on Cuba by 
with the help of Americans and were given some air support and training in order to try and overthrow Castro. It was a complete fiasco from beginning to end. Uh, Kennedy managed to escape some of the um, odium of this fiasco by his um, humor, by uh, not hiding the fact that it was a failure, and also by letting it well known that, in fact, the, the plan had been one which had been underway when Eisenhower was president. The fact that Kennedy changed the plan, the fact that the plan was a rather different one to the one that Eisenhower accepted, and the fact that almost certainly when it started going wrong, Eisenhower would have put in uh, Amer overt American forces in order to ensure victory are all rather glossed over by um, Kennedy history. But nevertheless, there are some serious questions about the way he made decisions during this time, the lack of control. And it's now become very clear that he was a serial drug abuser, that he was taking various drugs even during this crisis, morphine for one, and that he was way below his normal conduct and his normal decision making. More importantly than that, the very seeds of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62 were actually established when Kennedy met um, Khrushchev in Vienna. At that meeting, which his officials had been against, which he had very much wanted to go for, uh, Kennedy went, having been for nearly a month on daily injections of amphetamine and steroids from a doctor called Dr. Feelgood, that was his nickname, <laughs> but who was a, a fashionable doctor in, the United, in New York, um, who was giving these treatment to him without any of his doctors, any of Kennedy's other doctors knowing. Now Kennedy specialized, like a lot of people do who have serious illnesses, in compartmentalizing their medical care so his woman doctor, Dr. Travel, who was his doctor in the White House, was really a specialist in uh, muscle pain and in, treated his back. She had no real knowledge how, of Addison's disease or how to treat a complicated endocrinology. The endocrinologist lived in New York, and he had no knowledge that this Dr. Feelgood was pumping him with uh, full of amphetamines and steroids. So he was getting the normal steroid replacement plus an additional steroid replacement to this doctor, plus amphetamines, which in those days, in the early 60s, was still a drug that was used, although doctors were beginning to realize it was highly dangerous. This Dr. Feelgood accompanied Kennedy to Paris and then to Vienna before the meeting with Khrushchev, unbeknownst to his own doctors, who were also there on the trip. And he, there's almost certainly, Kennedy was given an intravenous injection of amphetamines um, 45 minutes before Khrushchev arrived for their first meeting. By common consent, it was a disastrous meeting, and uh, people like Ambassador Kennan, Ambassador Lewenin, who was also ambassador in Moscow, and senior American diplomats were absolutely staggered that this full of vigor, young American new president was taking on the chin endless sort of crude, vulgar jibes from Khrushchev. And Kennedy himself came out of the meeting saying it had been a complete and absolute failure. Now, the importance of that was that Khrushchev underestimated the man, thought that he was just, uh, you know, lightweight. And eight months later, in May, 
1962 made the decision to put missiles into Cuba with the graphic phrase that this would put ants in the pants of Uncle Sam. So in effect, we have a situation. Why does Kennedy make this complete mess of the Bay of Pigs, a disastrous meeting with uh, Khrushchev in 1961 in the first four months, five months of his presidency, and then 18 months into his presidency, handle by common consent one of the greatest crises that faces the world extremely well. And the answer lies in the fact that the doctors did painstakingly from October 1961 until the spring of 1962 gradually get control of what Kennedy was putting into himself, get some form of discipline into his medical care, get his back properly treated, stop his woman doctor in the White House infusing him with procaine injections into his muscles. And cocaine, procaine is a cocaine derivative. And you put a lot in, even in big dilutions. Some of it will cross the blood-brain barrier. And I have no doubt whatever, reading these records, which were kept secret for many years and only really revealed to a presidential historian, Robert Dalek, in, 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 in 2003, that if Kennedy had faced the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1961, in the summer of 1961, instead of in 1962, the outcome would have been one where there would have been a nuclear exchange. Now, this is pretty serious stuff. And it is extraordinary that here in the United States of America, it has been possible to hush up his record for the, all these years, and even now, most Americans don't actually want to hear about it. They would prefer to know that J.F. Kennedy was a great president, a hero, and full of vigor, and all their normal stuff, and they don't really want to be face up to the reality that he lied consistently to them, treated himself with extraordinarily badly, and was in no fit condition to be president for certainly substantial parts of his first year in office. Now, I could go on, and there are many, many other examples of it. The example which I think we need to look at constantly is President Nixon. There's been a tremendous attempt to rehabilitate Nixon. I mean, in my day, he was a hated figure. He is now seen by a substantial number of people in America as almost a good president, not a great president, but a good president, given, you could say quite rightly, a great deal of credit for bringing the war at Vietnam to an end and for making the breakthrough uh, to China and going to China and doing what was probably not possible for a democratic president, but to break down uh, the prejudices and actually engage diplomatically with China. Nevertheless, not only was he a crook and would have been undoubtedly impeached had he not resigned, uh, because he was, and we now know it, wholly complicit in the burglary of the Democratic headquarters, the so famous so-called Watergate scandal. But it's increasingly become clear that his alcoholism was such a problem that there were times when America went through periods of great crisis in, 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 uh, in foreign affairs, and he was not capable of making the decisions. And here you come to some very real questions. At a time when Israel was um, 
uh, the Arab-Israeli war was underway. And great tension was taking place between the two sides. Um, there was a moment when the whole of the American strategic air and nuclear forces were put on absolute, the highest state of alert by the Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, and by Nixon's aide, um, General Haig, while Nixon was asleep upstairs, drunk. Now, that's bad enough, but Kissinger went out of his way to ex and Haig to give the president great uh, credit for the decisions that he had taken uh, when he was, in fact, asleep, and they were taking them for him. And they went out of their way to present his um, role in, as being one of extreme activity, despite the fact that he was asleep. This happened twice, documented. But there are some other incidents which are beginning to come clear. Now, uh, it is very open to question whether Kissinger should not have tried to persuade the cabinet that the president was not fit and not well enough to continue in office. And under the um, American Constitution, under the so-called 25th Amendment, which was passed during Lyndon Johnson's time, there is a provision for being able to persuade or, if necessary, force by a congressional vote a president to step down temporarily or permanently as a result of ill health. I may say we have no such provision in our Constitution. Now, um, so I think, I hope I've drawn attention to enough quite important issues that I don't nearly need to deal with some of the other, in a way, more trivial things. But if you think this is just America, just quickly go through the Suez Crisis. Now, Anthony Eden uh, was a very, in my view, a very remarkable and thorough-going diplomat who'd been foreign secretary for many years. He unfortunately developed uh, problems with his gallbladder, and he was asked to go in and have an operation to remove his gallbladder, cholecystectomy, pretty routine operation, even in those days in the 50s. And his doctor gave him the name of three doctors, surgeons, who were specialized in this. And the first thing happened, again, very, very typically of a politician, he refused all three of the specialists and said he'd prefer his gallbladder to be taken out by the man who'd taken out his appendix. Now, I, if I was talking to medical students, they would all know medical students, even not qualified, are allowed to take out an appendix under some measure of supervision. And house surgeons spend their first six months in doing house surgery take, doing little else but taking out appendix operations. There's a hell of a difference between taking out your appendix and the gallbladder. And unfortunately, this gallbladder operation on Eden went wrong and the uh, consultant surgeon cut the bile duct, and Eden had to eventually go to America to get his bile duct repaired. That was not uh, until Lord Moran had tried to, who was Churchill's doctor during the war, and also afterwards, tried to persuade him that it would be wrong for a foreign secretary to go and be operated on in uh, America, and he should be operated on in England. And so Churchill summoned Sir Horace Evans, Eden's physician, and this uh, highly specialized biliary surgeon from the United States to down, number 10 Downing Street and proceeded to tell them that since he had had his appendix taken out on the kitchen table, 
he couldn't really see any real reason why he should go to America for this operation. <laughs> Anyhow, he did go through America. The operation was broadly successful. He was advised by his physician uh, in 1955 that he would be fit to be prime minister. Churchill eventually stepped down. Eden becomes prime minister. Then starts the Suez Crisis in the summer of 1956. Now, as I say, I'm not dealing with Eden's initial response to the Suez Crisis. People can argue about it, but it was certainly rational. I mean, he decided that this would not be allowed to stand, if you take a George, w, George Bush Sr.'s phrase, and that it would have to be changed, and he started to prepare for a military operation, and he also allowed a diplomatic process to go through. Eisenhower, as then uh, President of the United States, was very against military action and made it crystal clear. But the area I wish to focus on was the in October of 1956, Eden went to see his wife, who was in hospital for a minor operation, and during his time visiting her, he developed a rigor, was put into bed, and had a temperature of 106 degrees. Now, that for an adult is very high. Those of you with children are used to children running temperature of 105, maybe even 106. But 106 for an adult is a lot. And what he was having, and had been having for some time, was periodic bouts of infection of the liver as a result of this operation not going very well, called cholangitis. On top of this, we now know although it's been hotly denied, but when I went to look at his medical papers, as a result of his wife, who hotly denied that he'd ever been on any drugs, found clear evidence that he was on amphetamines, or what we used to call uppers and downers, which is an amphetamine to keep you awake and a barbiturate to get you to sleep, all in the same tablet. Anyhow, purple hearts. Now, he was meant to be having one a day, but... The, the nature of the strains and stress of the Suez operation, and he never made any secret of the fact when he spoke to the cabinet, he was on stimulants, and he was almost certainly taking m well more than one a day, probably two or three a day. So here you have a man who has a fever of 106, is taking amphetamines on a daily basis, probably in more dose than his doctors are aware of, and he is asked to see eight days later an emissary from France, uh, an Air Force officer being asked to see him by the Prime Minister to say that they wanted to collude with Israel, whereby Israel would attack Egypt. And when they reached the Suez Canal, the French and the British would say publicly that both sides should withdraw from the canal, the Egyptians who'd been attacked and the Israelis. And when they didn't withdraw, because it was agreed the Israelis wouldn't withdraw, uh, the French and British forces would go in as peacekeepers to go down the canal and keep it apart. Now, this is an amazingly foolish decision, in my judgment and the judgment of most people. But why should that it should have been made by this highly experienced uh, diplomat, foreign secretary for many years, Arabist, who had only a few weeks before been extremely worried that uh, Israel was about to attack Jordan, he took this decision because he could see no other way of solving the crisis, and it appealed to him. It was a totally out-of-character decision, and in my judgment, would never have been made by him if he had not been sick and also on drugs. 
And so I think that you can look at the actual point of the real, real Suez crisis when we decide to collude with Israel, that you had a prime minister who made judgments which were totally out of character against all his past history and almost solely due to his uh, medical condition and to some extent the sort of uh, strain and stresses that he was under. So this is an issue which is pretty serious. Now I will deal finally just with one issue which is this question of hubris. And uh, I, I think I would just shortcut it by saying I supported the uh, Iraq war. So you, I, I tell you that just to offset my bias. And I therefore am clearly in a position where I'm probably searching for some reason why it went wrong. So I just think you should reflect on that. However, the more I looked at the uh, crisis in, uh, in Iraq, the more I was reminded of this syndrome which I was beginning to think existed amongst politicians, which seemed to be something that went with the office, that the longer they stayed, the more likely they were to get into a, such a state of supreme self-confidence that they and only they knew the right thing to do. And they would, didn't need to take much advice. I'd already come to the conclusion that this was probably what had happened to my political hero, who, since I'm David Llewellyn Owen, you will not be surprised to know is David Lloyd George. How could this man be, I think, the greatest wartime prime minister, and I say that even better than Churchill, and widely thought so in 1919, how could this man make such a complete mess of the last two years in office? And I think, I'll go into it if you need to, it is explicable on the grounds that he started to ignore advice, take no counsel with other people, all of the things which he did during the war years but did not after the post-war years. I'd also watched Margaret Thatcher. And uh, some people say, well, she was always off her trolley. Well, uh, I watched her pretty closely in the Falklands War, and despite rejoice, rejoice on the steps of Downing Street, I, do, I think that was genuine relief at being able to take South Georgia. And despite what some people will say about the minor strike, I do not think, and that's the view of most of the people who were close to her, that she really started to change until after the, um, her third electoral victory in 1987. And when poll tax, also a very revealing incident when she thought that the Germans were about to create the Fourth Reich in becoming unified with East and West Germany after all those years of patient diplomacy which Britain was meant to be a great supporter. And then when she finally lost it over Europe and the famous no, 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 when she was then disowned by the backbenchers when they voted in sufficient numbers for Michael Heseltine. So I think hubris syndrome was already there. And the more I looked in the summer of 2003 at how we were in this dreadful mess in Iraq, the more I thought that is really what Bush and Blair have. And if you want a moment of hubris, cast your mind back to an aircraft landing on the US uh, Abraham Lincoln, not steaming off the shores of Iraq, incidentally, but steaming off the shores of California. And out steps a person in flying gear, and it's President George W. Bush, 
and then he stands on the flight deck and he makes a speech and up there on the superstructure and this is May the 1st 2003 is mission accomplished well we're still waiting for this mission to be accomplished but he no doubt believed it it is interesting to note that even Rumsfeld uh, had enough caution to say when he saw a copy of his speech that he thought mission accomplished was going a little far and perhaps he should remove it but by, nobody unfortunately told the poor person who put the slogan up on the aircraft carrier and as far as Bush, uh, Blair is concerned well I think the key moment was after he'd won a second election in 2001 when he effectively scrapped the cabinet subcommittee the cabinet um, committee structure and the secretariats. He'd uh, scrubbed the cabinet from the moment he took office, but I've already made speeches in this room about all this. You can question me about it if you like, but I think that was the moment when he took the decision that he would be like President Bush. He would be president of the UK as far as foreign affairs were concerned. Brown, with a certain amount of qualifications, was president in domestic and economic policy. And that you saw these pictures of these two men strutting in, you know, their things like this into the White House. That's what Blair wanted to be, and that's what he was for uh, two or three years. And um, making the decisions not answerable to cabinet, not answerable to experts in foreign office or Department of Defense. And the only way I think you can explain the complete absence of any form of serious planning for the aftermath of taking Baghdad was two people who were by now on sort of cloud lucky seven. They just simply couldn't believe there would be any uh, reception for them other as heroes. What they were doing was right. What they were doing was good. What they were doing was something which they really believed there was a higher, uh, higher judge, God, who was helping them. And the idea to have to go through the mundane difficulties of planning for what you might do in the aftermath somehow seemed to miss them by. And it is a most extraordinary saga. And I think it's only explicable on what I would call hubristic incompetence, which is different from the incompetence when you try your best to get the evidence and the facts and you make the wrong decisions. In this case, you haven't taken any steps to try and find out the evidence. You haven't given any very serious thought to it. And I think that, it is, uh, that these are examples of what I call hubris syndrome, which comes probably the longer you stay in office. And if you're looking for ways to cure it, one, certainly one way, is we should have in this system in, 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 uh, that the Americans have that you can't have more than two terms. So a um, British prime minister interrupted or uninterrupted service, when you've been there for eight years, that is your lot. And everybody knows you have to resign on your eighth year in office. Uh, probably a little shorter time wouldn't be a bad idea, but I don't think you'd probably get hold of that. Anyhow, this is a very complex, big subject, and I'm very happy to answer questions about it, and you yourselves now set the agenda. Thank you, David, very much. Could I, before we open it, add something to the hubris syndrome? We'll perhaps see if you would agree that it helps. I don't think there are any iron laws in politics. I think there's a non-ferrous metal law of premiership, however, and it's this, that the real danger comes when a crisis erupts in the area where they think they really are expert. They have the best formation in terms of background experience in the cabinet. Eden on diplomacy in the Middle East in 56 being a classic example. Uh, 
old friend Jim Callaghan on trade union power in 78-79. Jim was out of the bowels of the labour movement. Nobody really felt they had more experience of trade union movement than Jim. Nobody had a surer, swifter access to the mind of the aggrieved ratepayer than Mrs Thatcher thinks of the poll tax. And, although maybe the jury's gone out again now, Gordon Brown on the economy and the 10p and all that uh, thinks he knows. And that, I think, is the area of maximum danger when they think, even if they're trying to be collegial, which is a big if, actually, in some of those cases. Jim was certainly collegial most of the time. It's the area where they think they know something that they're, they're most vulnerable. And I think that is one of the other triggers of the hubris syndrome. Do you think there's something in that? Yes, I do. Um, not because I served under him, but I don't think, and you said yourself, that I don't think Jim Callaghan had hubris uh, syndrome. But like every politician, including myself, hubristic traits are certainly there. And when he believed uh, that you could impose a 5% pay limit, mm. and he and only he believed that, uh, Dennis Healy didn't believe it, Roy Hattersley didn't believe it, the cabinet didn't believe in it, and Jim was allowed to say this in the um, summer of uh, 1978, because everybody in the cabinet, except a few of us, including me, wanted to, uh, I didn't want to have an election, but they all thought we were going to have an election. So Dennis and co. didn't mind signing up for 5% because they knew there'd be an election and then we'd have to face reality after the election. So that's why he got away with it. But you, there was a hubristic element in this choosing this arbitrary figure of 5% and believing after really three years of very considerable trade union restraint on wages that they would buy into a fourth year. And they had warned that they wouldn't. So that is one. But I think what your category is very, I hadn't really thought of it, to be honest. So I will obviously have to revise the uh, subsequent editions. I think it, a trigger is that you, the more hubris, the more you think you know about the subject. Can I see a hand somewhere? Yes, over there. Do stand up. There's a microphone coming to you. Thank you. Um, I'm just wondering um, about the hubris sy syndrome. Um, how do you explain that the German Chancellor Helmut Kohl was in power for 16 years, I believe? Um, and may, do you, first of all, do you think he had the hubris syndrome as well? Do you think maybe it's more of a cultural aspect? Germans being so humbled after the Second World where they don't dare go above and beyond themselves anymore? Um, that was one question, and also, how do you see age as an, as an issue with John McCain, for example? Is that, um, is that an issue as well? Thank you. Well, I am glad you asked, because you see, a lot of people say, well, there's not a hubris syndrome. Firstly, hubris syndrome doesn't exist. I mean, the medical profession have not yet bought into it. I hope I can <laughs> persuade them to do so, and I'm engaged now in a fairly serious dialogue with the medical profession, writing in medical journals and getting other psychiatrists to write with me who know a lot more about the subject than I do, uh, to try and get it established. But you're right. Uh, one of the ways I think we, ha we need to answer is that a lot of journalists and others say, well, everybody's got hubris. All politicians are hubristic. You know, there's what's new about that? But you have put your finger on the fact that there are a lot of people who serve uh, as head of government for a substantial number of years who do not have hubris. Now, there are faults which you can find in uh, Chancellor Cole's conduct, 
but I do not think that he was hubristic. I only met him one-on-one -on -one twice, uh, but uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't think he was hubristic. The last time was in 1993 or four, 1993 or four. Um, and I think, you know, Truman was not hubristic. Mm -hmm. Ackley was not hubristic. Alec Hume wasn't hubristic. I don't think uh, Macmillan was hubristic. Um, other American presidents, a lot of them are, have got hubristic traits, you know, and I think you have to acknowledge that. But there are quite a few people who didn't have hubristic, hu hubris syndrome. Franklin Roosevelt could have gone over when he tried to sack uh, the uh, members of the Supreme Court and Congress wouldn't wear the legislation. And he was enough rooted in democracy that he didn't proceed. He, he realized he'd gone you know, up against it, and he, he didn't go too far. Some people think Theodore Roosevelt was, had hubris syndrome. Actually, he promised after the first election uh, that he won that he wouldn't stand again, and he didn't stand again. He stood again as the third candidate, but he didn't stand for the presidency which Taft won as a Republican candidate. So I think that there, that is a very reasonable thing. And the other one you asked about age. I think age is a very serious issue. Uh, I'm not, I don't think it's a feature of hubris syndrome, but if you think of dictators who had hubris syndrome, I think Hitler had hubris syndrome. And the careful way in which, with great skill, he became chancellor through the German system owed a great deal of the fact the Field Marshal Hindenburg was by then nearly 85, and he was senile. And uh, with great skill, Hitler used the system to take power uh, legitimately. And it's a very important element in assessing Hitler and trying to find out what it is, that he came to power through the structures and through the system. But it was very much, I think, helped by having an aging uh, president. So uh, as far as McCain is concerned, I think there are quite serious problems about his disclosure. He's a complicated man. In the fight with George W. Bush for the nomination of the Republican Party, he uh, distributed his Vietnam War medical records, all ex-Vietnam prisoners of war were subject, were given, you know, very extensive medical checkups over a long period of time. And I think it's something like 1,700 pages. He put them in. And some of it was embarrassing stuff. He admitted that he was very severe temper and a few things like that. So it wasn't totally anodyne to put it out. But he had a melanoma operation. Uh, and you notice he's got a swelling around his sort of parotid gland just by his ear in the year 2000. And he's not been very forthcoming about this. He promised a medical, uh, that his doctors would give a medical press conference. They eventually did in Arizona about two months after he promised it. And when they arrived, the medical journalists and others found that the doctors weren't there. It was a video conference. And the most sort of senior of all the Amer American medical correspondents, Lawrence Altman from the New York Times, was somehow prevented from answering a question, from asking a question. So it was not quite open. It is a fact also that um, Obama's only just given a one-page uh, summary of his medical care. 
Now, I'm, I think he's fit and well, but he's a smoker, has smoked for a very long time, had a great deal of difficulty giving it up. So he has to be watched for, you know, cancer of the lung. And I think it's a slight pity, and I rather, since I'm a great uh, supporter of him, I rather hope that he would have come absolutely clean with his medical records. Right at the back. Wait, wait for the machine. Microphone, rather. Hi there. Um, I'd just like to know, are there any countries that do have a system of medical disclosure of the kind that you would like to see? And if not, what kind of mechanism would you like to see in place in the UK? Nobody has a system of medical disclosure. And the first one seems to me to be to attack the problem from two, two sides. I mean, legislation is very difficult. Culturally, the British would be against legislation. It would be very difficult to get it through. And in a way, I think it is the responsibility of the political parties because the political activists are the people who are going to be interested in this issue and are the ones who could hold them to account. So if the political parties just insisted that nobody could stand for leadership of the party without a full medical assessment, then they have to make the next step, which is it must be an independent doctor. It must not be your own doctor. And that it, they must choose off a sort of panel of doctor, reputable doctors. Because otherwise, we know that their own doctor, a personal doctor, will simply lie on their behalf. And the history of this is absolutely self-evident. And there is a very difficult dilemma here for the medical profession, because their responsibility, right from the Hippocratic Oath onwards, is to the individual patient before them. It's a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And um, I would like to see the medical profession issue a sort of gui guidelines, a sort of code of conduct, that if you are treating high-profile public figures, you should not agree to issue public communiques. That your advice and your medical uh, responsibilities are one-on-one -on -one personal and you don't cross the line of also being able to sign communiques. If the politician or general or anybody, pop star, wants to have a medical communique, that should be somebody else who comes in and puts their name down it, not you as their doctor. And I think that's, these are, these are things that wouldn't require legislation, and I think that they could be introduced and should be introduced. But it, I don't think it's of any value without it being independent. Now, remember, I think hubris syndrome exists everywhere. I mean, look, reading the stories in this present crisis, it's certainly uh, senior bankers are high on the list at the moment. But I mean, there's no doubt generals, admirals have all had it. I mean, General MacArthur is a classic example who just simply went up, you know, cloud lucky seven type behavior. Then I think that you, you of course, got to face it, professors, vice chancellors. Uh, <laughs> Doctors, I'm, too I'm too modest to comment, you know, actually. So, I mean, I think that we've got to face it. Eventually, we need to try and get it. But the trouble is, the one that you've already indicated, that some people who are serious leaders just don't have this. So we can't assume that everybody has it. It does seem to be some extent related to how much power you have and how long you will hold and exercise that power. And people are very reluctant to accept it. And one of the reasons is well known to doctors you can have many medical conditions. The operation of the thyroid, whether it works too much, hypothyroidism, or too little, hypothyroidism, myxedema or thyrotoxicosis. 
the people who don't pick it up is the general practitioner who's seeing you every day or you know every week or every month. The person who comes in as the locum who suddenly sees you, they just get the, they can set it straight away. And it is very difficult if you are in cabinet with somebody year in, year out, and gradually they get this. I'm sure lots of people genuinely didn't think that Blair was out of order. They, they were used to it. They just gradually saw him take more and more power, more and more confident. Civil servants will tell you, you know, looking back, they'll say, when he first started, he used to listen and would uh, sum up a meeting and say, we're going to do this. And then gradually he'd come to a meeting and start saying what he wanted to do before the discussion had even started. Now, these are behavioral changes which are quite tricky to pick up. And that's why, for example, the non-executive directors of companies are literally charged. I mean, I'm a non-executive director in a big American company called Abbott Laboratories. Our responsibility, really, the one that really matters, is to see that the chief executive and president of the company is staying on the rails. And in one other aspect of my life, I have been involved in a company which did get rid of the chief executive without the chief executive almost realizing he had been got rid of. Um, but we saw underneath the surface a behavior pattern which was not uh, compatible with containing that high office. Now, that is what non-executive directors is above all there for. They're obviously there to see that their hand isn't in the till and a few other things like that. But particularly when a, a chief executive is successful and doing very well and the company's share price is going up, they're about the only people who can hold them to account. And they should be able to do it and sufficiently independent to do it. And in a funny way, I think business is further on to getting systematic use of this. And some businesses now do insist that the medical advice, and a regular medical examination, should be done by an independent doctor and not their own doctor. Question at the top, right over there. Hi there. Um, with many kind of famous rep former Republicans coming out to support Obama, like Francis Fukuyama and Colin Powell, um, Emerson once said that um, uh, foolish consistency is the trademark of little minds. What do you think the relationship is between hubris and publicly admitting that you've made a mistake? Well, I think that hubristic people tend to not believe it possible they can make a mistake. I mean, that is why they are hubristic. They are just very self-confident. They believe that they are right. The word, as you know, comes from classical Greek mythology. And the Greeks used to highlight one of the characteristics of hubris was contempt. And you do find it very often. They are people who are caught up in hubris get contemptuous about and I think that's one of the sort of features that you might look for and see in this. Um, I, I didn't quite see why Colin Powell and endorsement of Obama was a factor. Perhaps I didn't catch that. Admitting point. a mistake, I think. Oh, admitting a mistake. Well, I don't think it's admitting a mistake if you're a Republican in, in Colin Powell's position. I mean, you probably he was not very political in his early days as a, an, an army officer became uh, in the White House, went in as a sort of White House trainee, and then came in, and the Republicans gave him his great opportunity, really. And Reagan, 
made him his uh, foreign uh, security advisor, which was you know, a massive step up. And it is very often how much the right wing are the people who make the big changes in conservative first woman prime minister conservative. And it is extraordinary. The Republicans actually have been, I mean, first black secretary of state, Condoleezza Rice. Um, well, no, after, after Colin Powell, so two, effectively, both under George W. Bush. I mean, if you're looking for a few things to give him credit for, that might be one. <laughs> now, I mean, I, I'm not sure it's a mistake in those circumstances, a hardened Republican political pro to go across, as some of them have done to Obama, is very interesting. And we may well see uh, when he, if he does win, and uh, you know he's not there yet. Um, I, I profoundly hope he does. That he will cross the aisle in his appointments. But again, that has been done before. In America, up until fairly recently, I, my view, you know more about it than I do, Peter. But I, bipartisanship was quite strong, particularly on foreign policy. It used to be actually in Britain too, but crossing the aisle, friendships across the aisle, senators and congressmen was quite common. Um, it's got more polarized uh, in the last 20 years. There's no doubt about that. And a lot of this is this evangelical fervor that has gripped American politics. So there's something else other than what you would call nitty-gritty day-to-day politics. I mean, life itself has become a very big emotive issue. Mm. Over there. I uh, just wanted to ask, um, in the 70s and 80s, apparently the um, KGB beamed microwaves at the uh, American embassy in uh, Moscow, and a lot of people in the American embassy became quite ill. I was just wondering if um, you know or suspect any situations where people in positions of leadership have become ill due to um, some form of outside interference. Well, I don't know about this beaming radiation. I mean, there is, the, um, there is a way in which you can hear what's going on by the movement of glass panels. Well, yes. That's, a, that's certainly that's a form of radiation, Absolutely. and that may be the one that you're thinking of. Now, that may have had, and I'm sure they wouldn't care too much about it, uh, consequences for your health. But that wasn't the prime reason that they did that particular thing. So... Um, I think that um, in the days of the Cold War, which we are not in and we are not about to return to, in my view, um, there was a thing, a feeling that almost anything went. And um, it may be that some techniques were used uh, to debilitate people. there was a mad, mad conspiracy theory that Gate School was poisoned by the KGB because they wanted Harold Wilson, who was their agent, to succeed. But that was complete bollocks on stilts, actually. Yeah. And it came from the mind of a deranged defector. Um, you might be thinking of that one, but that really was complete nonsense, actually. As most had, of these conspiracy theories are. Gate which is a pretty nasty illness sometimes. It can be controlled, and that's what uh, contributed to his death. Wilson is a, is a classic case where conspiracy theories abound, but it's pretty hard to find any other prime minister who resigned without being forced out by their party, like Thatcher was sought out, like Blair was sought out, 
or by their doctors. I mean, Wilson's GP doctor did want him to step down, but he was not under pressure. I mean, his wife was wanting him to step down. He was not under pressure. He actually stepped down because he wanted to, because he decided to, probably before he won the 74 election. Uh, it's a strange thing how much they... I mean, he was mildly paranoid, uh, Wilson. He's paranoid about you for a while, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> well, well, he promoted me, uh, but I mean, he actually was quite overt. When he first promoted me, I came from having had uh, dinner with somebody called Bob McLennan, in, and the sole subject of the, was how to get rid of Harold Wilson. This was in 68. And I was called along, and I thought I was for, in for a great big bollocking, and he announced that he wanted to make me parliamentary undersecretary for the Royal Navy. And I said, but Harold, I'm one of your biggest critics. And he laughed, and he said, ah, but you can't be now. <laughs> <laughs> Over there. Just two questions. Do you think there's an sort of inverse relationship between hubrism and physical health? In other words, people that are more physically healthy are more likely to feel almost infallible and as, as if they, so that might be a relationship between that. And the other question is, surely the diagnosis of something like hubrism is more of a psychological thing than a, would a medical doctor be able to identify something like that? And would you therefore say that we should be having psychological assessments of leaders before they go into power as well? Well, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that uh, the diagnosis requires, I mean, best made by a psychiatrist. But I mean, how do you lead the uh, suspect, unsuspecting leader to, to a psychiatrist? It's not very easy to do. These people tend to, you know, as I say, compartmentalize their medical care. But my son, who is a psychiatrist, keeps on criticizing me, a neurologist, uh, writing about all these things on the basis of uh, considerable ignorance. But I did do a bit of psychiatry when I was a neurologist, but it was a hell of a long time ago. So I can't, there comes a point where I can't take this very much further. So I enlist other psychiatrists to help me, but it, it's fairly soon going to have to go back into the medical profession. Now, within the medical profession, there is a syndrome called narcissistic personality disorder, which hubris may well be a part of. But again, if you're trying to try and get the body politic to consider a syndrome, you call it narcissistic, and they've switched off before you've gone beyond the fourth letter. And so, I mean, hubris has a certain sort of respectability, you know, Greeks, isn't it? No, I think it's like that. And a fascination of maybe nemesis is around. It's, it's sort of more easy to get to. Also, I think it is very much more a, a disease of office. I mean. The, the neurochemistry of all this is absolutely in its infancy, but I believe it will be seen to be part of the fear, fright, adrenergic, adrenaline response. And it's quite often out of the mouths of babes and sucklings comes forth wisdom, but out of the mouths of the non-medical, non-scientists also comes wisdom. When Blair was getting uh, on a high, was actually over Kosovo, and he was disagreeing with Clinton. And one of Clinton's uh, people said to a journalist who then wrote it up, that the trouble with Blair is he's sprinkling too much adrenaline on his cornflakes. <laughs> and that word adrenaline frequently comes up in this thing. And it's that thereby hangs the, the, the detective clue, in my view, to it. And adrenaline, we know, as norepinephrine is a, a neurotransmitter, and there is this 
when I was a young uh, research worker on the medical unit at St. Thomas's, I used to work on adrenaline, so I've got a vested interest in proving this connection. You worked on it adre with adrenaline driving you or on the subject of adrenaline? <laughs> well, we actually used to, the person I worked with turned out to be one of the greatest neurologists and neuropharmacologists of my generation, a person called David Marsden. And that's the reason I'm a politician, because I soon realized that I wasn't in the same league as him. <laughs> but we used to inject adrenaline into each other as a form oh, of test. Now we uh, know. If you inject pure adrenaline, you're dead. <laughs> If you inject the wrong dilution of adrenaline, you're dead. And so we used to watch each other very carefully as we jointly <laughs> diluted this uh, adrenaline. That's it's like uh, somebody likened it to having a sherry. <laughs> well, days of innocence. Last question over here, then we must close. Do you think it is possible to find somebody perfectly sane um, to be in power? Or well, what would constitute... <laughs> What would constitute the perfect health condition to be in power? Well, I really do think it is possible. And I think that people are, a lot of, a lot of heads of government have been completely sane and uh, modest and uh, decent people. And I, I, I therefore, you can see the, 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 the constraints and you can see the opportunities and why people go off the rails. And I, I think it is an interesting question, you know, what is it, what are the characteristics of the person who doesn't go off the rails? Well, humor is one thing. There's no question that humor is a way of defusing some of the pomp and circumstance and the supreme self-confidence. And a certain cynicism is also, I think that Franklin Roosevelt had both humor and cynicism. Churchill, um, was hubristic. Some people think he had bipolar disorder, which is manic depression. I have not put the label of hubris syndrome on anybody who has serious depression, because it is very difficult to make a diagnosis, and particularly you're not seeing these as patients uh, across a, a consulting room. You're trying to retrospectively pick up from uh, scraps of biography and things like that, trying to make a diagnosis. Um, Lyndon Johnson is thought to have bipolar disorder, and I think almost certainly did. Some people think Theodore Roosevelt had. I don't think he did personally, but that's by the way. But that's one of your problems: is that you know there is a well-known illness which allows you to be both depressed and manic at different intervals, and you've got to be careful that you're not seeing the up phase of a depressive illness. Uh, so that's one of your distinctions that you've got to make. Um, I think that um, a firm and clear-headed wife helps. Uh, and uh, my wife is sitting in the audience, so I have to be careful about this. But um, uh, Winston Churchill was written to by Clementine Churchill in July 1940, you know, right at the height of his maximum powers, when he really wasn't very, very important, crucial figure. And she, the first line is, Winston, you're impossible. And you really must start treating people as if they're, realize that they're trying to help you. And this, now I think that is also a factor. I, when David Lloyd George, who was obviously hubristic, didn't have hubris syndrome, which was during the war years, 
he had a very interesting relationship. Firstly, he created the first war cabinet. It was a cabinet in which he was the only liberal. There were three conservatives and a Labour person and himself. And almost every morning that he was in London, he would go from number 10 into number 11 and uh, settle down and talk to Bernal Law. And Bernal Law was a man, it can really be said of a politician, that he was a man without ambition. And he also had a sort of cynical and a rather sort of um, a, criti a critical uh, makeup. And he would, in the course of this hour's conversation, knock on the head about nine out of ten, out of ten of uh, Lloyd George's ideas. It was almost as if he was putting it there as a form of restraint. And there are people who think that Willie Whitelaw was a serious constraining factor on Margaret Thatcher, and she only started really to go off the rails when he ceased to be really in active politics. It was not because she trusted his intellect or anything like that, but she, he was first of all a big beast. He had a, he had a power base inside his party. That's one of the problems. Uh, you know, Attlee was never went off the rails, but he was surrounded by very formidable people, and they, he, you know. So that is, I think, one of the factors. Who is surrounding you? What is their relative influence? How much you respect them and what you do? I think all of that happens. And, and the other thing is, of course, a critical press. And I mean, a, a serious press can influence you. I mean, I've I definitely been influenced. by. I've been criticized by my friends, journalistic friends of mine, who really wrote quite saying, One accused me of being megalomanic in... Uh, 1987, and it was probably close to the point because the, the SDP was more or less collapsing. I re refused to join the Liberals, and I'd stepped down as leader. So I had none of the normal constraints on me, and probably I was living a sort of fool's paradise. Actually, I didn't believe that the SDP could survive on its own. But uh, so I think these are all factors that you need to look at, uh, and I would strongly argue that there are very serious charts of curls, another example, but there are many examples of people who have held high office and have not been at all hubristic. David, that was terrific. Thank you very much for coming. And please bear a Very good.